Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, an Austrian economist, PhD extraordinaire, Bob Murphy. Thanks for coming on, Bob. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, George. Glad to be here. And now, okay, so first what I want to do is I want to read you a mm -hmm. quote from Jerome Powell. Okay. And I want to get your take on this. Let me go over, and I'm gonna. you'll have to bear with me. I'm going to read this so I can get his specific words. And this is according to the New York Times. The chairman of the Federal Reserve Board has given Congress an upbeat view of the U.S. economy, predicting that unemployment was likely to remain low over the next two years as inflation declined slightly. And I want to go down further here. I think you'll get a kick out of these, uh, these, these paragraphs in this specific quote. It says, in contrast to the changing moods on Wall Street, the Fed expressed a broad satisfaction that the nation remains on track for a soft landing, quote-unquote. The modest slowdown in growth that would reduce upward pressure on prices without aggravating unemployment. And now here's a quote directly from Powell. The U.S. economy appears to be making a transition from the rapid rate of expansion experienced over the preceding several years to a more sustainable average pace of growth. So now before you give me your opinion, I want to mention that that in fact was not Jerome Powell. That was Ben Bernanke in 2007. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was me. And I was like, what, did I say that? <laughs> no, but my, I, I just did that for uh, a YouTube video. I thought you'd get a kick out yeah. of that because it's exactly what they're saying right now. And I'm not saying that predicts that we're going to have a hard landing right. instead of a soft landing. But that what that does tell you is that the Fed's ability to predict the future is extremely poor if there's not an inverse relationship there. Well, yeah, I, I guess my the only caveat I would put in there is they may know full well that they're managing expectations. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like they because and it would be weird if to know that oh, I got to be real careful when I go give a press conference because if I say you know if I sneeze, that's going to cause the market to crash, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I think yeah. that must mess with your head and like change what your value system is because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of ex Fed shares that once they get out of the job, they actually become good economists again. <laughs> like Bernanke sounds a lot more reasonable pre and post being, you know, at the Fed. So yeah, yeah, and same thing with Greenspan, right? Right, right. Um, so so there so there is that element to it. So in other words, they may know full well. Oh yeah, it's going to be a hard landing, but think well, we can't cause a panic. Just like yeah, you, know, yeah. you can imagine if the if the Pentagon knows, oh no, the aliens are coming and we can't stop them. They might not <laughs> be forthcoming, you know. So yeah, and I know they. They definitely think about psychology. I, I remember reading a paper from the Fed on the predictive ability of the yield curve. Mm -hmm. And their conclusion was that it really doesn't predict anything, but it creates a recession because people believe that it's as predictive power. Oh, really? So that, that, yeah, yeah. Th their conclusion was that the market uh, sees that, or market participants, mm -hmm. or the average Joe and Jane, sees that the yield curve is inverted and then they get freaked out because they think that there's going to be a recession so they spend less and that reduction in aggregate demand is what creates the recession it wasn't the fact that the yield curve has any predictive ability huh if you can dig that up afterwards and send that to me because I've, I've done a bunch of stuff and, and that's actually what reassures me i mean reassures not the right word to use in this situation that i do think we're not going to have a soft landing 
not just because of my Austrian views, but be, and, you know, I'm like, Oh, a perma bear or something like that. But yeah. you know, as, as I'm sure, you know, like the 10 year, three month yield curve measure has been inverted since October. And it's like mm. the most inverted it's been in 50 years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just did a video on this as well. And, and when Bernanke said that in February of 2007, the three month and 10 year at about a 60 basis point inversion. And now it's about 1.2%. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and uh which i hadn't i was just looking at how long has it been inverted and it took one of my uh podcast fans like sent me a note saying it what does it mean that it's like double the past four times you know the past four weeks and i, <laughs> I was like yeah i said wow i don't know i got to think about it I, I didn't i didn't realize that i wasn't looking at like the the magnitude of it i was just looking at the duration or the, or the longevity of it um it, but also too i'm sure your listeners know this but that's what's so funny about that that quote quote you or the the idea is that they're just dismissing it. Oh yeah. It's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy or sunspot theory is yeah. that, you know, the, um, the people that were looking at this in the eighties, like it was a phenomenon. And then like people had to actually notice the pattern first. And then it was a puzzle. Like why the heck should this be true? So mm. it wasn't like, Oh yeah, everyone just knows this is the case. And it's just because everyone thinks it's going to happen that, it, that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like it was a puzzle that then grew in popularity. So it clearly like for the man on the street to know that that's a thing, Obviously, it must have been a thing beforehand, and people are trying to figure out why. Yeah, and, and also the the idea that the man on the street has any clue what the yield curve is, I think right. is kind of ri ridiculous. But I think the overall theme of the, the post was that we should dismiss the twos and tens and mm -hmm. even the, the three-month and uh, tenure and focus on this super esoteric like metric that the Fed uses uh -huh. on like the, the – it was something – it has had a really weird name and uh, anyway, but uh, I think that was just, but within that they're saying how this doesn't matter because it's just uh, the, the public sees this and they, their behavior changes due to this, uh, this uh, mm -hmm. yield curve inversion. And if we could just get rid of this chart altogether, it would like eliminate the recession. <laughs> wow. so, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? Yeah. <laughs> For people who don't know, because I know I, I might have some of my people, because I tweeted this out listening. So if, if you've been beating your crowd over this, then I apologize for the redundancy. But yeah, I mean, the predict, when we talk about the predictive power of the yield curve, it's really good, like in terms of yeah. you know macro indicators. And there's both in type one and type two errors. In other words, it's there hasn't been a, a recession where there wasn't a yield curve inversion. And when there was a yield curve inversion, there always was a recession. And e like even the near misses kind of thing, you know, depending on how you, you so you got to define it a certain way. Like if it just yeah. inverts for one trading session, that doesn't count. Like there's got to be a certain duration or whatever for to say, this is what we mean by a yield curve inversion. But it, but it's not like bending over backwards to really make it fit. Like if you just look at a basic, go to the Fred, you know, the St. Louis Fed website folks and, just type in 10 year minus three month and they have that as a separate series. You can just see right before all those gray bars going back, you know, to the fifties is how far back that series goes mm -hmm. for them. And it's inversion, you know, every time. And it's so by that metric, we should be due for an official recession, maybe by the end of this calendar year or possibly depending on the specifics, you know, early what 2024. Yeah. But it, it would be a big, you know, this time would have to be very different for there not to be a recession coming. Yeah. Have you given any thought to the magnitude of the inversion? Because, you know, we are talking about how 60 basis points. Now mm -hmm. it's 1.2%. And you had a listener say, hey, Bob, you know, what does this mean that it's so inverted? 
Right. Have you given that any thought? And do you think that implies that there's a a hard landing uh, compared to maybe a soft landing? I mean, that's my intuition. And so I guess, so this isn't mere, um, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the Austrian school of economics. And so we don't like to just look at data and, you know, you like, you want to have solid theory. And so what I did is reconcile this pattern with standard Misesi and business cycle theory. And it does make sense, correct? Because in the boom, the central banks flood money into commercial banks are following suit and they're expanding credit, artificial interest rates get pushed down. But if you be more specific, you know, that's kind of how the standard Austrian story goes, but then to be more specific and say, well, which interest rates? Well, it's the shorter term ones that are more malleable and that, you know, bank Mm. policy has more effect on. And so you would, that's, you know, a quote, normal upward sloping yield curve would be in the midst of a boom in the Austrian framework. And then the bust happens when they chicken out or whatever, and they slam on the brakes short rates rise above long rates. And that's what distinguishes, like when you, if you read Paul Krugman, how he explains the yield curve inversion, his theory is internally consistent, but it just doesn't fit the data because his theory is that, oh, people know that a recession's coming. They predict the Fed's going to raise rates in the future. Um, and, and Or sorry, they're going to raise rates in the short term and then lower rates down the road because we're going to be in the midst of a recession. Yeah. And then that's what causes long rates to move around and cause the but in practice, that's not what happened. Like going in and when the housing bubble crashed, it wasn't that long rates fell off a cliff because everyone saw that there was a crash coming. It was that short rates went way up. Mm-hmm. And that's why the yield curve inverted was because short rates rose above, rose above, which totally fits the Austrian story that it's the slam the brakes. So if that's generally correct, then yeah, my intuition would be the more the yield curve inversion there is, then that means the more like the either the prior boom was really inflationary and or they're really slamming the brakes hard, which right. would lead you to think. So it, it's actually probably better from a long-term perspective. If you, if you're an Austrian sort of sound money person to think, no, they're just, they're just pulling the bandit off fast as opposed to, you know, trying to trickle it out. But in terms of like how bad will the recession be right in the beginning, it's probably going to be worse than your typical recession. Yeah. Although there's no way to really time it. That's the, that, that's the thing that kind of takes us into one of the things I wanted to discuss. And, you know, back probably two months ago, I stumbled upon some charts and it's on this website called longtermtrends.net, I think. And I started go- and they have got data going all the way back to like the late 1860s as far as CPI, M2, and nominal GDP, but then I took a calculator and I could figure out what real GDP was. Mm-hmm. And you can do like cumulative totals for any time sequence you want. So if you want to just look at a five-year segment and compare like, uh, let's say 1895 to, uh, you know, to 1995 or something, you know, you can do that or you can do like 30 year. And I got to playing around with it. And one of the conclusions or one of the hypotheses hypotheses that I had was that there wasn't a fixed rate of, uh, or there wasn't a fixed relationship between M2 and CPI. And uh, because I was trying to look at it from a standpoint of sound money, because in, in my view, sound money was, might not have been a panacea, but it would be a significant tool that we could use to decrease the size of government and then also to bring about an economy where deflation productive deflation was far more likely but then i looked at um 
like the the time span between let's say 1870 and 1900 and then i looked at like 1930 to 1960 1960 to 1990 1990 to 2020 and i saw that there was a few times there uh, starting with 1870 to 1900 where m2 went up by 400% right on the nose but each time each 30 year sequence had a much different level of cpi uh, to the extent that in the 1800s m2 went up by 400% and they had 45% deflation during that time frame and then you take it to the highest level of cpi which i saw with that amount of increase, which was 1990 to 2020, about 400% M2 uh, money supply growth, and then about 100 and my memory serves me like 125% inflation. And so I'm like, how can I reconcile these two things? So I started going through it, and I started looking at government spending and all. And the conclusion that I came to, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that it, it might because there wasn't this fixed relationship between M2 and uh and the cpi the the only fixed relationship that i found and again you know who, who knows this could just be correlation was that as government spending as a percentage of gdp increased it seemed like real gdp decreased and as real gdp decreased if you had the same amount of increase in m2 then the cpi would be higher mm -hmm. right so let, let me just say it another way in uh, the 1800s, you had 400% increase in M2, but real GDP went up by 300%. Mm -hmm. And that's when you had the CPI at negative 45, cumulatively. But then moving uh, forward to, let's say, 1990, more recent time frame, you had that same 400%, but uh, real GDP growth, if my memory serves me right, was only like 75%, much, much lower than we saw in the 1800s. And I, and I thought, okay, well, then you, I would expect CPI to be a lot higher if the, the, the relationship that we should be focused on isn't necessarily just M2 money supply growth, but more so the delta between M2 and real GDP. And then if that's true, and if you can conclude that real GDP does go down or is likely to go down, the more government spending we have as a percentage of GDP, then that's what we should really be focused on instead of just you know, trying to uh, restrain the level of M2 growth. Does that, does that make sense? And if, if so, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Okay, sure. So yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise, it, in fact, it's like that would be standard theory, right? You would expect that, especially over long stretches, that changes in the quantity of money, roughly speaking, divided by changes in the growth and real output would correspond to what happens to nominal prices. Yeah. Right. So if the number of dollars, yeah, if the number of dollar bills things? double and the amount of real output doubles, even if people's cash, you know, desire to hold cash is still the same, you would expect the price, you know, prices to be roughly the same, right? Yeah, there's twice as many dollar bills floating around, but there's twice as much eggs and whatever. And so the yeah, price yeah. per unit, you would yeah. think that would roughly cancel. Also, yeah. too, um, it gets tricky when you're looking at like older time period, because like as, as the monetary economy expands, you know, if there's people that used to just like farmers or whatever out in rural areas in the year 1800 didn't use a lot of cash to settle transactions, but then that became more popular 
you know, that could be a factor too. If you're talking like, you know, 1800 to 1880 or something, there could be things yeah. like that. So I, I don't want to disrupt your train of thought yep. and I want to circle back to that. So I'm going to write that down. And as soon as you get done with your thought, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit that. So go, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Bob. Um, oh, I see. You're saying you want to ex- touch on that, but okay. I thought yeah. you were going to ask me something. I guess you're saying, no, no, so, no, I don't want to ruin okay, the train yeah, of thought. So, so that, that I totally agree with. And then, yeah, as you're saying is a separate matter then. So the issue though, is like, if, we're in the midst of something and oh wow, Fed policy changed or, or we just happened to look and gee in the last six months, M2 growth is through the roof, historically speaking. What do we think that's gonna mean for prices of you know gasoline and eggs and stuff over the next three months? So you know, it, it's right that we could say ex post, oh, looking back, we can see what happened to real GDP and da, da, da. but if you're trying to like use it predictively, it's easier in real time to figure out what's the you know, how's the quantity of money changing versus you know, the you know, infamously, it's hard to predict, you know, the, the Fed can't tell you until way after the fact whether a recession started or not. So so that's why in practice, even though you're right, that's a much better theoretical mechanism. That's why they they don't tend to do that. Yeah, it's because if it's trying to if it's trying to guide us and help us anticipate what's you know, what's CPI likely to be next month, it's it's much easier to tell to guess what's going to happen with M1 and M2 than it is to guess well, what's real output next month going to be. Do you know if that's what Milton Friedman's position was? I I, I kind of remember hearing him say because he's always quoted as saying inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But I mm-hmm. thought that that he specified that it that it was more so that relationship between M two and real GDP. Mm-hmm. Did, am I right there? Am I just well? Kind of making that like up? I said, because what I'm saying is pretty basic in terms of economic theory like you know inflation's too much money chasing too few goods so yeah even yeah. in that formulation it's got the goods in there um so so yeah and i've heard freeman kind of elaborate a bit and so really what he is willing to die on the hill of is to say throughout history whenever there's a really big change where prices aggressively go mm. up it's not because there's a famine or an earthquake or something it's because the government was running the printing presses yeah, right. But in right. terms of yearly, oh, why was CPI inflation 6.2% this year and only 4.8% the next year, there could be all kinds of moving you know, bells and whistles to explain that particular discrepancy. He's talking about really you know, big moves. That's the one that – and because, again, it's when you get stuff like, oh, 1,000% inflation, that's not because real GDP's growth changed that much. You know what I mean? It couldn't be. Yeah, it's right. Not that, it's yeah. not that the economy shrank ninety percent or something. Yeah, at a certain point, you cannot create uh, goods and services that quickly. Right, or if we're talking about inflation, so inflation obviously would be if the production went down. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to right. get these you know crazy hyperinflation numbers, it would have to be real output fell ninety nine point nine 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 percent or something. Right. And, yeah, yeah. You know, everybody would be dead. Yeah. Okay. So the the next kind of idea I had based on that premise was okay if there if there's not this fixed relationship if there are other variables that are extremely significant maybe those other variables are even more significant and if we really want small government that's the goal like a limited federal government let's say it is is sound money a panacea because you know on on social media and in a lot of the the, the space and this is what I wanted it to be mm-hmm Honestly, you know, I wanted sound money to be a panacea, but I thought about it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If it's if it has more to do with the government spending as a percentage of GDP, what if we were in a world 
where we had sound money, but yet society favored larger government or more government spending or more intrusive government, you know, could we run into a position where we could still get consumer price inflation? And then I kind of had this thought experiment that I tweeted out the other day. It's, I, I asked the, the Twitter people, if you would prefer fiat money system with a society that favored small government, or would you prefer sound money in a society that favored big government? Mm -hmm. Which do we think would produce or would have the, the greatest probability of producing that productive deflation that we all know is most beneficial for you know, society at large and the poor and middle class? What do you think about that thought experiment? And it, where are my blind spots here? Okay. So, um, if, if you're going to say, yeah, uh, you know, like if that's the choice and it's realistic to assume that, that they stay in their lanes and that you could have a society where the government has the, you know, fiat money and they, they have a monopoly on the, on the, you know, the legal currency and or ten, tender and so forth. Um, but then just culturally, yeah, they no, the government shouldn't have anything to do with education and, you know, roads that should all be you know funded by private tolls. And what are you talking about, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, and even, yeah. you know, let's say I have private security forces. You don't need a bunch of cops walking the beat. Sure. Um, I, I guess, though, it would be given the government, though, the printing, it, it's hard because it seems free. So it would be hard to resist the government expanding whatever services are considered legitimate because it's easier. Like, that's the whole point. And that, like, for, just to give a quick example. Yeah. The people who are anti-war and link it to the central bank. And, and I saw it like like one of the Libertarian Party chapters tweeted out get rid of the fed then get rid of the wars or something meaning like one would follow the other or without the fed there couldn't be the war something like that and somebody was you know said, well no i mean the us government went into war before the federal reserve existed and, blah, blah, blah. and it's like yeah okay but you know more more charitably like in world war 1 all the major belligerents went off the gold standard the, the us yeah. stayed most faithful to it but even they you know limited like how much gold you could export and stuff like that yeah. and that was a reason and so there were if you read accounts certain strategists thought world war one was going to end after three months because they said it's just too expensive, but that's mm. because they were doing gold standard thinking. And then, you know, once they went off gold, then they could just keep accruing debts and, and printing money and so on. And their, you know, their currencies yeah. got crushed. So th that's the idea that if the government had to pay for its expenditures, either through explicit taxation or, you know, honest borrowing, but it couldn't debase the currency that would limit. So yes, if the public really liked their welfare state and I'm sure, you know, Sweden or whatever would have a bigger welfare state, even with sound money than the U S with sound money. But the idea is it just seems so much cheaper, even though it's not like the public yeah. still pays for it or indirectly through monetary inflation, you know, prices rising. But uh, so to answer your question, I'm just, I'm just saying, I think in practice, the, the idea is it, it would be unrealistic to assume it would statically stay like that. It's not a right. stable equilibrium. Yeah, the conclusion I came to, or, or one of them, is sound money would likely constrain the government, but or constrain the Federal Reserve, however you want to look at it, but it, it might not lead to small government. And, and the way I kind of got there was I looked at, um, I looked at, first and foremost, the tax receipts as a percentage of GDP, mm -hmm. and I looked at federal spending. And then I looked at state and local, you know, when I was going through that. And then I, I saw just kind of this notch up, up higher and higher and higher. And in that same 
chart, it showed you, you know, what percentage of that spending was coming through actual taxation. So you could see the deficit. And prior to 2000, you know, let's say seven or something like that, there wasn't that big of a deficit. I mean, the, the deficit was big, but that was an accumulated thing. If you look mm -hmm. at it year over year, you can see how, you know, if the federal government is collecting 18% of GDP in taxes, and then let's just say you've got another 15% state and local, you know, state and local, they're having to either tax or borrow from existing money. They don't have a, a Fed to monetize that debt. So I thought to myself, you know, right there, that takes us to say 30% of government spending as a percentage of GDP. And I thought, you know, would I consider that small government? I'm like, no, I mean, for me, that's, that is suboptimal. Uh, for me, what would be optimal would be back in the 1800s when it was less than 10%, you'll call it maybe five, mm -hmm. 6% prior to the Fed. So that to me would be an indication or a proxy for limited government and anything over 20%, you know, when we're getting up to 30, 35. And I, then I thought to myself, okay, could we get there just strictly with taxation? I'm like, shoot, we're almost already there. And that's with no money printing whatsoever. Uh, and you're saying that's because that's the state and local that, which don't have recourse to the state and local. Mm -hmm. And as voters, we're, we're, we're voting uh, for the government to tax us, the federal government, the taxes at the tune of 18% of GDP per year. So assuming that the federal government is going to spend all of that, all the taxes they're collecting, that means that at a very minimum at a federal level, we're going to be at 18% uh, government spending as a percentage of GDP. Plus you've got to add on the state and local. And that's why I'm thinking, yes, it might constrain it, you know, to your point with wars and whatnot, mm -hmm. but I don't know that it would inevitably lead to enough constraint to uh, create a, a limited government where, you know, it's less than 10%. If we can look at American society today and see that, that we, the people <laughs> are, are, are voting to, to have mm -hmm. them uh, borrow or we're either giving them the money through borrowing but even if you just take the taxes alone uh that still puts us at a point where we're call it north of like 25 percent. sure so i i guess what i would say then like in response to your original thought experiment is that i think sound money is a necessary but insufficient condition for small government right, right that if right. you don't have sound money there's no yeah. it's unrealistic to assume you're going to contain the government because it's going to be so easy for them to bribe people because even if 90 percent of the public doesn't want something if the government can just print money and hand it out to the 10% who do, it's going to be hard to restrain them. If it looks, you know, like, Oh, it's not us. It's just prices are rising. It's those greedy unions or it's the OPEC or whatever, you know, yeah, it's yeah. not, you know, if you're not being taxed and you can't even point to official government debt to, to explain, you know, why is this happening? Then, then the spending seems like it's not having an effect. Um, but yeah, but you're, but it, you're like, you say, that's not enough. I, I do think though, there is, there is like a feedback mechanism where, so for example, it's, the I think that given that they have the Fed there waiting in the wings to monetize the debt, that allows the federal government, the, the Treasury, to issue more debt into the private sector at lower interest rates. Because for one thing, you know, there's a secondary market and the Fed does buy it. But even there, people know that it could if it had to. So that's why, mm -hmm. you know, Treasuries are considered, quote, the safest asset in the world because everybody says, oh, push came to shove. They can just print more dollars like 
like you know that and that's where the mmt people are coming from that it's always right. just a political choice if they want to default or not as opposed to a private company that might just not be able to pay off its bondholders yeah Whereas, right so yeah the treasury can always just have the fed print money if they had to and so you know given that they have that recourse where there's no you know even the last vestiges of the gold standard dead i think that allows the treasury to borrow and spend more and so in terms of expenditure so to your point you could still say well, yeah but still why why is the tax component so big and i guess it might just be once the spending gets out of control they do have to kind of raise taxes and to follow suit just to make the interest payments and whatever to keep things from getting completely crazy yeah but um yeah i i, I still do think then also too I, I realize this is a little bit you know appeal to psychology but there was something that happened right after the bailouts in 2008 where like there were TV commercial or um, radio commercials I would hear saying stuff like, hey, it's time to get your bailout. Come down to Jim Honda and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and it's like the idea that the, the feds just bailed out the banks. So that means money's not real. Everyone just free money, mm. you know, and I, I think I remember those. Yeah, like it really messed with people because for a while they were worried and they were listening to people like me. And I don't know if you were, and I was concerned that prices were going to go. And then that didn't happen. And maybe you and I want to talk about that as to why, but then it was like, okay, yeah, they can just print money and get people out of the holes they dug for themselves. And so money's not really, you know, there's no such thing as budget constraints anymore. Maybe there used to be, but not now. And I think yeah. that allows like that reduces the vigilance with which you restrain government spending. If it looks like they just ran, you know, a $1 trillion plus deficit. Like during the George W. Bush years, a $200 billion deficit was alarming people. Mm. And, you know, a 300 billion would be, you know, wow, that's really reckless. You stupid Republicans or whatever. And then, <laughs> you know, there were, I think Obama had four years in a row where the deficit, the deficit was above a trillion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. When I say on social media that I'm I'm kind of wondering if sound money in and of itself is a panacea, as you can imagine, I get a lot of <laughs> I get a lot I get a lot of venom for that one, right? And they always say, "Well, George, why do you wear that in the Fed hat?" Oh, and right, right. And I'm like, "Hey, I'm not a big fan of the Fed, but I, I that doesn't necessarily mean that I think they have direct control over the money supply or you know what we were just talking about. I, my you know cardinal sin." if I'm looking at the Fed, is the manipulation of the price of money. So, so we don't have a market rate for money. That's number one. And number two, the bailouts, to your mm -hmm. point. I, I think that, that, you know, another thought experiment that I've tried to do is uh, go back to when they started QE 
And, you know, we know that there, the market just pretty much went straight up the stock market. And, and I, but I don't know that there's a causal effect. I think it might be psychology. But what I tried to envision is if they didn't bail out long-term capital management, or if there had never been any bailouts, they just let people fail. And if they just let the banks fail, let's say in 2007, let's say they, that would have happened prior to quantitative easing. And then they did QE, would we have seen the same risk on type of environment in the stock market if you just had this kind of vacuum of quantitative easing? And I, the, you know, obviously we don't know for sure, but when I kind of think through that, I'm like, I don't think we would have. I don't think, I, I think the reason we had so much risk on wasn't necessarily because of QE, but it was more so because the market, that, that was a signal to the market right. that the Fed has your back mm-hmm. and, and the Fed is going to bail you out uh, if, if need be. So just you know, increase the size of your balance sheet to the point where you're systemically important. Yeah, there was a period, because I was going around giving a lot of talks in that period when the, you know, the QEs, rounds of QE were going on and I was you know, very alarmed. And I was, I found this chart. I wasn't like looking for it. I just popped out one time when I was playing around with the charts on Fred and I was like, whoa. And it was, there was a period there um, where if you charted the S and P 500 against um, the monetary base or the, you know, total assets held by the feds kind of equivalent. And it was hand in glove. Like Mm. those two things went, you know, it was, it was freaky how, and it, it only broke down when, when Trump got elected, then the stock market jumped, even though there wasn't like a corresponding you know, a, a boom in, in the, the Fed's asset purchases at that point. Right. And so, you know, presumably that's because they thought, oh, wow, we had been pricing in a Hillary presidency and now it's Trump. And so, you know, asset values go up. So, so yeah, that, I think you're right. And then when you ask why, it's because it, also, too, it wasn't, I mean, they, they were explicitly saying, like in terms of the Fed explaining, okay, why are we going to, you know, start up a new round of QE or why are we going to keep this one going? They would look at asset prices, you know, I mean, they wouldn't say, oh, we want to help our buddies on Wall Street, but they would say asset prices are, you know, faltering and thus, you know, foreshadowing future declines in economic activity. And so that's one of the reasons we blah, 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 blah. And so they were, you know, admitting partly why we're going to keep the asset purchases up is because Wall Street's faltering. You know, it it, it wasn't merely looking at the Bank of England was pretty explicit about the purpose of QE being to increase asset prices. Right. And they would even use that as a sign of success. Yeah. Like to say, oh, how do we know QE2 worked? Well, look at what happened to asset prices. You're right. They yeah. wouldn't say the stock market because that sounds a little bit too like, well, wait a minute. But to say asset prices sounds very, you know, like, ah, oh, yes, that sounds good. We like yeah, assets. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this brings us to another topic there. And uh, let's move over to your paper. Or is was it an ebook, Bob, or was it an actual book, The the Understanding Money Mechanics? It, it's an actual physical, I mean, you can get it, the PDF and whatever, obviously, but yeah, it's, it's a physical book. Yeah. So I, I'd strong, and where can people get that? Cause I'd really encourage them downloading it and checking it, it, it the out. Mises, so if you go to, you know, M-I-S-E-S.org and just type in, you know, in their search bar, understanding money mechanics, it'll pop up. Okay. Fantastic. So in this, you, uh, in chapter 12, you go over this report from the Bank of England that they had in 2014, which I'd also encourage people reading. And this is a report that I've read just like thousands of times uh, Mm. in doing whiteboard videos and whatnot. So I'm really glad that you referenced that. But that was, uh, you specifically reference where they say that uh, the traditional economics 
textbooks have the kind of role of the central bank and the banking system in reverse order. And mm-hmm. I think that this is really, really, really important uh, for people to get their head around on, on a, a variety of different levels. But basically the way we see it is the Federal Reserve comes out and they say, okay, we're going to create this many bank reserves by doing by open market operations or quantitative easing or whatever. And then the uh, banking system then says, okay, based on a reserve requirement, we've got this many bank reserves. So we can go ahead and create this many dollars worth of mm-hmm. loans. Mm-hmm. And that's the way, I mean, 99.999% of people out there, even very sophisticated people think that that's the only way it works. That's the only uh, possibility. But they say, no, it's actually in reverse where the banks will come out and lend. And then the Bank of England will look and say, okay, well, how, okay, based on their lending practices, um, how much, how many reserves do they need? And then we'll go ahead and create the reserves by buying a few treasuries here and there, you know, some mortgage-backed securities to make sure that they're, um, that they're adhering to those uh, reserve requirements that we have stipulated. And another thing, and Josh, if you could write this down too, I want to, if Bob wants this, I can send him a link. Uh, I was reading a summary from the Federal Reserve for 1995 open market operations. And I, I found it fascinating that they actually, they don't come right out and explicitly say this, but the language implies that this is exactly what they were doing, even at the Federal Reserve in 1995. And I think that, among other things, kind of completely turns everything upside down to where it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe the Fed doesn't have control over, let's say, M2 money supply. Maybe it's more the banking system. And you know, another thing too, Bob, that I thought was funny. I was listening to one of your interviews and I, I can't remember which one it was. I was at the gym. This is probably a month or so ago. And uh, you were talking to someone about like a book you read or maybe another interview. And the guy that you were referencing said, uh, as an example, when's the last time you went to a bank and they said, you're a perfect candidate, but damn it. Unfortunately, we just ran out of money or (laughs) unfortunately we just hit our reserve requirement. So if you could just come back maybe in a month and then, uh, you know, we'll have some more reserves Mm -hmm. or maybe the fed will be nice enough to, to uh, lower the interest rate or something like that. And then we'll be, uh, we'll be able to give you that home loan. And so like no bank has ever said that. So you got to ask yourself why, and that's something kind of an example that I've used many times as well. But you want to maybe start by dissecting that idea. And then um, I think, you know, kind of where you might take the conversation is how uh, if the banks are settling on the Fed's balance sheet, then those reserves would act as a constraint. Now, whether or not the, the, the Fed is creating them as a result of lending or lending is happening as a result of the Fed creating them, maybe that's semantics and, and maybe it's not. Can you kind of articulate your view on that? Sure. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be real. So the, the traditional view, I've taught it this way, the, the standard money and te- banking textbooks, you know, from the 50s and 60s, this is how it was taught for a while. We just say, oh, yes, if the if the central bank wants to um, pr- promote economic growth, they will go buy assets, typically government bonds that adds reserves to the banking system with a you know statutory reserve requirement. Now the banks have excess reserves. They can legally go out and make new loans to people. Those people get the loans, they redeposit it in their local commercial bank. Those reserves get over there. They make loans, blah, blah, blah. And then it's and when, the, when the system is fully loaned up, mm. there, if it's a 10% reserve requirement, then for you know every $1,000 of reserves that the 
central bank pumps in, there's $10,000 in new money that, you know, the reserves plus $9,000 more of additional loans that have been made that are now sitting in people's checking account balances. And that's, and so that there, like I said, there, that's the driver of inflation and growth is the central bank's decision to either buy assets, which is inflationary or it's contractionary. If they sell off assets, then that's the reverse of what I just said. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. The contrarian view comes along and says, what that's, if anything, that's backwards. And sometimes though, they'll, they'll just say this. And I think this is a little bit wrong or leave something important out. They'll say, no, no, you know, no commercial. They look at the loan, like the, the prospect, the credit worthiness and whatever. Is this a good investment or not? A good loan to make the loan department? Will, and then they'll go ahead and make it or not. And then they'll check and, oh, gee, if we're short on reserves, like we're not feeding, meeting our reserve requirement, we'll just go out into the market for reserves and get what we need. Right. And so that and then sometimes they just stop right there. And so no, you got to look at an aggregate total. Yeah. So what I said in the, you know, the book, the understanding money mechanics, and I, I wasn't trying to say one story is right or wrong. I was just trying to reconcile the two and say, okay, but what happens, that's just a nice, so right. The individual bank, that might be how they think, but in the, the aggregate, the system as a whole, if more if banks, all of a sudden, you know, you're in an original equilibrium where the banks are all fully loaned up and then they all make a lot, you know, a billion dollars more in loans, mm. th- they need a hundred million dollars more in reserves. If there's a 10% reserve requirement. Right. And they can't, if, if they're borrowing it from somebody else, well, then that person's short. You know what I mean? It can't be that everybody, you know, is, is short, that, that they can't work. And so that, but I said, but it, th- they do have a point because especially if how the central bank is operating is it's announcing a target for the federal funds rate, which mm-hmm. is just the overnight interest rate or sorry, the interest rate on overnight loans of reserves. Well, then what that means is if the banks are all scrambling because they see good loan opportunities a bunch of them now are short reserves and they're going to the market for reserves to try to borrow them to meet the legal requirement that pushes up the federal funds rate. And so if the central bank, you know, their policies, we want the the federal funds rate to be between two and, you know, 2.25% and it gets pushed up to 3% because the banks are clamoring. Well, how do they push it back down to their target? They buy assets and put more reserves in. So it's not, all you need to assume is that the central bank's, uh, policy mechanism or the way they implement monetary policy is by targeting the federal funds rate. And then that, you know, the second version of the story does go through where it's the commercial banks activity that, you know, sort of drives or, or you know, the, the, in other words, the fed passively responds to the demand for reserves. Yeah. That's yep. one way of putting it. So I said, you could tell the story that way. And, j- and just to your point, George, I know a guy who's very steeped in Austrian economics and happened to be, a banker for part of his career. And he told me, he said, I had, ne- I have never been in a loan meeting where anybody said, Hey, do we have excess reserves right now? He said, that, that's the story. That's yeah. the story I was thinking about, Bob. That okay. that's, okay. that's the story that I was thinking about. Yeah. And so I, I wish I had it pulled up right here. I, I was reading it earlier, but that uh, summary of open market operations from the fed in 1995 it, it says exactly that. They, the, basically, I think the guy who wrote it ran like the New York Fed's trading desk. And he said that they would sit there and try to determine, you know, what bank lending was going to look like over the next month. Mm-hmm. And then they'd factor in where they want the Fed funds rate to be. Mm-hmm. And then they'd determine how many reserves they need to add to the system to achieve that objective based on the current trajectory of bank lending. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 precisely what you were what you just kind of outlined there. 
Okay, well, that's good. That's reassuring because yeah, I kind of just did that a priori when I wrote the thing. Like I was just thinking through the logic of it and so. so oh, do you do you want me to send you the link to yeah, that? Yeah, that'd be yeah, that'd be great. Okay, Josh, um, can you can you write that down as well, and I'll I'll shoot that over to to Bob. So, so, so again, so just yeah, to ahead. wrap, you know, so both sides they do have a grain of truth. You know what I mean? Like the like the original canonical textbook view. It's not that it's wrong in terms of like it's true. If the if the central bank just creates a certain amount of reserves and then they enforce the law saying you need to keep ten percent of your you know, uh, of your demand deposits set aside as reserves, either in the vault as currency or on deposit with the central bank, that would constrain aggregate lending. That, yeah, one bank could expand, but if it's trying to borrow reserves from somebody else, then that other bank has to restrict. But again, and the, you know, the point being in practice, though, if the central bank's policy is to target, you know, in, in other words, if their policy isn't, here's how many reserves we're going to have next month. And, you know, central banks typically don't talk like that. That's not what they're measuring. Although with QE, that is kind of what they were doing is they were saying, you know, we're going to just announce to the market, this is what we're in terms of asset purchase is what we're doing. Mm. But in any event that, that, yeah, that's the, so it's not that the textbooks were wrong per se. It's just that, yeah, it is possible that in practice that was giving people a misleading uh, view. And to the extent that business optimism or pessimism was driving commercial bank lending, that was, and then, yeah, the central bank, if it just passively expanded or restricted reserves to keep hitting its target, you could see why just the textbook view would be very uh, misleading. I think the textbook view was mechanically close or, mm -hmm. or maybe accurate, but the takeaway I think is what confuses people because the takeaway there would be the fed is the puppeteer, right? right. When it comes to the M2 money supply, let's say. And uh, the way I like to, to, to say it, like I texted you earlier is if we're looking at the monetary solar system, most people, they, they've, they look at that textbook definition and they assume that the Fed is the sun and the commercial banks are kind of the earth just revolving around the sun. But if you step back and you say, wait a minute, if the Fed is just responding to what the, what the banks are doing, then it, it flips everything upside down to where there isn't that constraint really on bank lending. Uh, the only constraint is, you know, do they have productive loans to... to to create, or do they have a credit to extend? And then the, the Fed is going to respond to that. And then they might try to manipulate that interest rate, but they're still going to make sure there's enough reserves to meet that requirement. Therefore, the it might be more appropriate to look at that solar system as though the commercial banks are the sun, and then the Fed is kind of the earth. It's like revolving around the, the mm. commercial banks. And I, I think, I, you know, if we had another two hours, I could go into like countless ways that that impacts uh, or that would change current thinking uh, in the marketplace and maybe with economists. But, you know, it's, it's kind of base level. I think that's that's what I, I try to articulate. And that's what I try to think through. So can I respond to that? Do we have time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. OK, so I, I get what you're saying. And I guess just to make sh sh like to give more nuance to it. So, but just to ex extend the thinking though. So again, where I was coming from is that, yes, the, I understand the critics that if the central bank is just targeting like a, you know, a range for the federal funds rate, then they're going to passively let the commercial banks drive what the level of reserves is going to be. But how does the central bank come up with what that target rate is? It's partly because it worries about like what's price and what's CPI doing. And so mm -hmm. if the commercial banks are making a bunch of loans because now we're in an artificial boom, let's say, and things are going well, and then the, the the Fed has the 
target federal funds rate of 2%. And so they're adding reserves, adding reserves. And then all of a sudden, you know, but now because they're pumping in all this money and banks are multiple, you know, pyramiding on top of that because there's good loan opportunities. Yep, yep. And then all of a sudden, you know, CPI starts rising 10% a year. The Fed's going to raise that federal funds target rate. Right. And so ultimately still, they do have the power to kill the boom or to feed it, I would say. And in terms, and then if you want to say, yeah, but the, the commercial banks altogether have more aggregate power than the federal open market committee members, you know, maybe they, they, like, you know, we could do pros and cons, but still the, the fed being one player is obviously much bigger than any one commercial bank. I, you know what I mean, so it's sort of like saying what's more powerful, the, you know, the Pentagon or the bond market or something. And there's a, you could make arguments either way, but there's a sense in which the guy in a tank coming through your house has more power over you directly than, you know, what, what happens to interest rates when pe people are worried about default from on the corporate America. Yeah, absolutely. I just try to think through it in terms of M2 and, and asking myself, you know, in, in, in this one entity or the combined effort of all these entities, mm -hmm. um, at, at any given time, to your point, the Fed can really increase M2. That, that is, you know, look at a war, look at uh, 2020, you know, when we had uh, M2 go up by 25% or whatever it was. So there's, there's spurts where the Fed can really matter and, and move the needle. But if, if the, the way I look at it is if you look at long periods of time, uh, the, the, the major player in the impact M2 is going to be the combined effort of the commercial banking system. And that, that's, uh, maybe that's a little too nuanced, but I, I think that has uh, specific uh, ramifications um, that again would take us another two hours to, mm -hmm. to really think about. But, it, and I think that goes back to if we're trying to limit the size of government, you know, or if we're trying to limit the size of M2, if that's an objective, then, you know, if we're sitting there being hyper, hyper focused on the, on the Fed, that might not be the best use of our time. Okay. Yeah. So one quick thing where I'm agreeing with you in the mail, disagree on a separate point real fast is in terms of the agreement. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it. I'll send you a link if, if you haven't seen it, but I gave a talk at Mises university recently where I was contrasting. I said, Hey, how is it that the huge increase in the monetary base with the rounds of QE didn't lead to, you know, $6 eggs, but why is it with the, the huge pumping of money during COVID all of a sudden it looked like, you know, the, the monetarists were right again, whereas before mm. it looked like we were idiots kind of thing. And, um, and one of the things I, I mentioned was that what misled me at the time is right after when the QEs were kicking in M one went went up. Mm. And so people who were saying, Oh no, this is just all bottled up in the banks and the public's not getting their hands in this money. I was saying, no M one. And for people who don't M one is like actual currency in the hands of the public and demand deposits, like, you know, checking account balances. So saying no, M1 is it's not up as much as the, the monetary base, but it, it is way up by historical standards. So it's not this isn't completely being contained. But what I realized later when I was looking back at it is the M2 didn't go up too much after the QEs, whereas it did go up during COVID. And and so like what since M M1 is a component of M2, I was like, well, then something in M2 must have gone down. And it was retail money market mutual funds. Oh, yeah. And so that fell off a cliff after 2008. And so there, like, so I was, so I can see how, oh yeah, like there's, you know, like the fact that people were panicked when, you know, funds break in the buck and whatever. So people were panicked and presumably they wanted to hoard like currency in their checking account balances. 
because that was the only thing that was considered, you know, they expanded FDIC and all that stuff. And so, you yeah, know, had I, had I looked at the time, the difference between M1 and M2, I might have realized, oh, wait a minute, people are panicked. They're so sopping up all this extra cash. That's why you're not going to see an explosion in consumer prices because right. the demand to hold money, whereas in, in COVID 2020, that didn't happen. Like they pumped in a bunch of money and people were spending it. Yeah. So, that, so another explanation that something might add to that is I read a paper from the Federal Reserve. I was actually researching a whiteboard video the other day, and they attributed the increase of M2 to four factors, but two main factors. And that was number one, uh, businesses and consumers that had access to lines of credit mm -hmm. drew those down very, very quickly mm -hmm. because they thought the, the, the crap was going to hit the fan. And if you're a, a business and you've got a $250,000 line of credit, you're like, <laughs> I'm going to take that right now. <laughs> Thank you very mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. uh, that was number one. And then number two was when, and I, I've given this a lot of thought. And I talk about this often. It's uh, when the Fed does quantitative easing, you know, how does that impact M2? And if they're buying from a bank, it really doesn't. But if they impact, or excuse me, but if they buy from non-bank entities, then that will definitely impact M2. And so the, the Fed said that number one, it was the, the lines of credit, number two, because for whatever reason, the majority of the bonds that they purchased via the primary dealers mm -hmm. were coming directly off the balance sheets of non-bank entities. Mm -hmm. So you had that asset swap where the Fed or you know, via the primary dealer is saying, I'll take that treasury, thank you very much, and we'll go ahead and give you this additional uh, commercial bank deposit. And that increases the M2. So those are the two main contributing factors that they said went into that parabolic move in M2. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's, that's good to think. If I, just to circle back though. Yeah. So I, like that on the one hand, I was sort of agreeing with you that, yeah, there's the sense in which what's happening on the ground out in the markets is more, has more influence or at least is a big component of what's going on. You can't just look at, you know, statistics of fed policy, on the other hand, though, if your if your takeaway is well, gee, if we want to constrain like the growth of M two, maybe focusing on the central banks, not the thing. My only concern with that is, it's it's much easier to just focus, like to say something like the Fed can only increase its balance sheet two percent a year or whatever we want to say, whereas it would be harder to come up like how would you you know can I wouldn't want to pass a rule saying commercial banks can only increase their loan portfolio by X percent a year. Kind nor of would I. So, yeah, nor would I. So no, even I, though I, I agree there's a bunch of moving, but like to give a stupid analogy, you, you could like say, well, yeah, we're well, sure we can make sure when pilots are getting in to fly the plane that they're not drunk. But I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that could go wrong. There could be lightning. There could be a flock of birds. There could be, you know, a maintenance failure. And so just focusing on making sure the pilots aren't drunk isn't going to guarantee the plane's not going to crash. And it's like, sure, but in terms of bang for the buck, if I could just like, that's a pretty good thing. Let's make sure the pilot's not drunk before he gets behind you know, <laughs> the, this, the wheel or the, what is it, would you call it the wheel on it with the stick? What, what do you yeah. call it when the pilot gets behind something? In the yeah, plane? no, I, I didn't communicate that very well. I, my, um, you know, you can't, there's nothing that's going to be perfect, of course, but I think the, the least bad way to, to have a banking system is just pretty much free banking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like we had in the 1800s, Right. And I think that if you look at the 1800s, if that's, you know, accurate, uh, that we can conclude that the majority of that increase in M2 coming from the banks, you know, the additional extension of credit was going for productive purposes. And that's likely why we saw 
uh, real GDP go up by 300% uh, during that time frame. And I would argue that more recently, uh, the, the majority of credit that's being extended is not for productive purposes. And that's why we see a much lower uh, percentage of real GDP growth. And mm-hmm. therefore, with the same increase in M2, we see a much higher rate of consumer price inflation. Yeah, I agree with all that. So the key Both, there is, yeah. to, is, is to get the government, get the central bank out of the equation with the banks and just let the, the free market manage that interest rate, extend the credit. If the free market decides they want fractional reserve lending, then that's fine. Uh, then those banks will get the business and that's what will happen. And the you know then you have the highest probability of creating uh, loans and extending credit for purposes that will most likely increase goods and services. Yeah, I agree, I agree with all that. Um, that yeah, ultimately, the only the best policy, like like it, it would be if, if you know the Khrushchev or someone came to us and said, "Well, how, what's the best way to centrally plan agriculture?" And we would say, "You can't. There's mm-hmm. no good way to do it. Just privatize the farms and blah blah blah." And yeah, given that you're putting a gun to my head and making me pick, there's some rules for wheat production that are stupider than other ones, I'm, I assume. But uh, that, yeah, ultimately we can't centrally plan it. And the same thing with with money and banking, that ultimately just you got to get the political you know, institutions out of it altogether and return to the market. And that's the only thing yeah. that's going to really work. So on that note, you know, I, wa- I said at the very beginning, I wanted to circle back here. And I know we're running short on time, Bob. And I, I just let me know if you need to. I'm OK. Cut it off here. Um, in going all over all these statistics, one of the pushbacks that, that I get frequently is, and, and you alluded to this, you said, well, you know, GDP back in the 1800s was a lot different, or maybe M2 money supply was measured differently, or maybe, you know, you can't look at government spending as a percentage of GDP back then and compare that to today because the the government apparatus is so entirely different that it's apples to oranges. And my comeback is, is I always say, well, I agree that GDP isn't perfect, number one. And I agree that it was measured uh, differently, but I don't know that you can completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that just because, like CPI is a good example. We all know CPI is mm. nonsense. Right. But to say that we shouldn't even uh, use it for any type of... Uh, uh, hypothesis or, or trying to think through, you know, what's going to happen in the future or what's happening now or what happened in the past. I don't know that I would go to that length. I still think that CPI is flawed as it is still gives us a lot of good information. Uh, you know, maybe just the, the direction of mm-hmm. consumer price increases. So, I um, mean, you, you know, I'm just an amateur. I've never taken an econ class or a finance class or anything like that. You're the professional, you know, you've got your doctorate in economics so how, when you're trying to process information and using specific metrics, you know, do you use GDP? Do you use government spending as a percentage of GDP? Do you use M2? Do you use the CPI? And, and if so, you know, how do you try to uh, account for the fact that it might have been calculated differently in the 1800s versus today? Okay, sure. So another thing too is remember there was a period, if you remember like older textbooks, they called it gross national product, GNP. Yeah. And then yeah. they switched it to GDP because that because back when there weren't like multinational corporations, the, the the difference between those two wasn't as big a deal. But then, you know, over time that that did become more of a bigger deal. Um 
so for people not like GDP is more like what's being produced on our soil within our borders, even if it's by foreigners, you know, running operations here, in which case it's like accruing to their nation. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, and this has to do, um, there was a, and I can't remember the name of it now or, or who the authors were, but there was a revision even by like mainstream economists, um, that there was a, it looked like for a while, like the conventional wisdom was that some of the panics as they called them before they call them recessions or even depression, like the, the panics in, in the 1800s were considered were, you know, pretty bad. And then they did, they ran some number and they realized that, Oh no, it, it wasn't because they were looking at like collapsing prices. Right. But assuming that was collapsing real GDP, right? Exactly. Right. Because in, in the 20th century, like if, if, if farm prices dropped, 30% or something, then that usually meant it was a bad economy. Yeah. Whereas back then, because, and I would argue like, so, so the mainstream economists didn't necessarily say this, but I, but they just were using other tools to say, Oh, the fact that, you know, agricultural prices fell this much in this period. But if you look at these other proxies for, you know, industrial production or whatever, it wasn't so Real bad wage growth for heaven's sake. Yeah. yeah. And so, because again, part of the issue is they didn't measure stuff as much back then you know what I'm mean? saying so they we don't have you know they have things like you know commodity prices and stuff that people had to buy and sell like professionally and so you have some good data there but you don't have a lot of the you know you don't have consumers being uh surveyed by the BLS or something um so they, they in other words it just it changed what the estimates were of real GDP declines during some of the recessions of the 1800s because again, they had assumed with our modern perspective that oh yeah, falling rapidly, falling prices means your economy's in the toilet. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case back then. I think because everything was more nimble, it was just free. And, and yeah, and because they were still tied to gold or silver, depending on the years you're looking at, there could be a boom, and and prices would rise. But ultimately, they it had to come back down. And so you know there there was that that cycle, and that's why you know prices in terms of gold and silver or like a hundred dollars tended to buy you the same basket of goods over a long stretch of time. It wasn't constant year to year, but like if it, if it, you know, if the dollar weakened in a certain period, then it would strengthen over time because yeah. they, they had that peg. So um, because of that stability, I would say, you know, much sounder money that, that um, so to answer your question that you got to be careful and, and yes, yeah, some of those statistics can be useful, but um newer interpretations which which are i think are, are actually more even-handed to to realize that yeah some of that stuff when you look at these older data series like in other words if you just look at what's real gdp in from in 1870 to 1880 some of the earlier estimates were very pessimistic because they were just looking at falling nominal prices when actually that wasn't reflecting what real prosperity or you know what i mean so um so going way back you, you run into that issue yeah to answer modern times I you got to start with just conventional stuff, but there's even problems. This last thing I'll mention, like World War II, there was a huge issue that Bob Higgs found. You look at standard measures of, of real GDP and it was awful, you know, in the 30s. And then all of a sudden, 1940, 41, 42, 43, it just goes through the roof. Yeah. And everyone says, see, so huge government deficits boost the economy. And there were two things wrong with that. So one is they were counting government expenditures, like a thousand dollars of government expenditure adds to GDP, the same amount as a thousand dollars of consumer expenditure when mm. even theoretically, like not because I'm a Rothbard, but just even on its face, no, a coercively obtained tax dollars 
spent is not the same yeah. institutionally as you know consumers voluntarily. Yeah, that increase money. in GDP did not accrue down to society at large. Right. Even again, just theoretically, like why would we think spending money is a measurement of consumer value or something? Mm -hmm. And it's and and so that that whole mechanism isn't there if it's a government expenditure because that they don't get to keep the money if they don't spend it. Right. So just institutionally, the fact that the Pentagon spends a million dollars on something doesn't mean the same thing as if you spend a million dollars on a house. Yeah. And so, um, and then beyond that, another thing, this is what Bob Higgs found and documented was, so the fed pumped in a bunch of money and, or you could say the commercial banks expanded it, right? <laughs> Whoever the center of the solar system, was, but the money supply greatly increased in the world war two, but they had price controls in effect. Mm, so normally yeah real GDP doesn't get boosted as much from just printing money and spending it because, oh, oh yeah, point. nominal expenditures go up, nominal GDP goes up. Oh, but you deflate it by the, you know, the, the price deflate. Yep, yep, yep. But that was legal, legally prevented from happening yeah. <laughs> and they didn't adjust for that. So when you go and look at the standard, you know, quote, historical real GDP figures or official, I should say, they don't account for that at all. Uh, and I, 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 even separate, I emailed, yeah, I emailed Bob Higgs to make sure I said, do you mean, they adjusted for it, but you don't think they did it accurately or they didn't account for that at all. And he said they didn't account for that at all. Wow. So the they fact that, you know, prices price should have risen 10 percent, but legally weren't allowed to. Did they do it in the 70s? Just, I I think they they account for it in the 70s. Like they might fudge it. But but no, I mean, it's um, I believe that they took into account the wage and price controls in the 70s. OK, OK. I, I'm not sure, but I th I think they did. Yeah, Josh, write that down. I'll have to look into that. That that can you imagine if they if they didn't do that? That's a good the, that's a good question. I don't know. Huh. And I don't know if the price controls in the 1970s were as extensive as they were in the 40s. I'd have to look at that. No, well. I I don't think they were by any. I think it was mostly like the energy. Yeah. Um, so, sec, and, and even the wages that I think it was more fleeting. So as a professional, if you were trying to compare mm -hmm. uh, economic output or the strength of the economy uh, today or in modern times versus, uh, you know, prior to the Fed. Right. Uh, I think what you're saying is you, you, you'd use GDP, but understand that there's a lot of wiggle room with that number. Uh, would, you, would you just try to seek out as many data points as you could during that time frame prior to the, the, the Fed to see if they mm -hmm. corresponded with your your with the real GDP number to see if you know if ninety-nine percent of the other data points that you get suggest that there was significant real GDP growth, then you can say, okay, there this was probably correct. Would, would, is that how a pro would do it or what do you think? Well, I'm not an economic historian, but in terms of me, like looking at other people's stuff. So let me clarify. Like if you I were actually, writing a paper, how would you do it? Yeah, I probably wouldn't. So let me just um, clarify. I, I wouldn't necessarily like I, I would just to see what, you know, what it shows. Yeah, I, I would probably look at real GDP figures as, as they're constructed. But since I know those are much sketchier back then, yeah, I probably would try to do an apples to apples and look at. I mean, I could, you could literally look at Apple production, but, you yeah. know, like iron or, or some, you know, more tangible thing that I know the data is pretty real, no pun intended, like, you know, authentic, I should say, yeah. Yeah. from then to look, you know, to see, oh, yeah, 
uh, you know, steel production fell off or this, this much. And then look at looking back. So that's, that's probably what I would, would try to do. But again, even there, it's tricky because if it's an agricultural economy, you know, it, it's, it's tough, but um, be, because I, like I say, I know that those like real GDP involves looking at nominal expenditures and dividing by a price deflator. And so mm. if you don't have as much stuff going into that and you're constructing it differently, it, that could give you vastly different results. So I, I would try to look at stuff like that or, um, I'm trying to think of what other kind of proxies you could look at, but yeah, I think I would look at the conventional aggregate figures, but then I would like spot check it with some individual things that are, are more. Yeah. Another thing that I did is I just tried to see if that correlation was consistent through different time periods, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and if, and if I can see that it was, then that might add a little more validity to it. Although it wouldn't be, you know, definitive. Right. Right. I mean, there's things too, like with the roaring twenties, I mean, yeah, you can look at the conventional, but there's stuff like, you know, the electrification of America and how many people started getting radios and and, and refrigerators and stuff. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of sort of anecdotal thing to show, like there was a sense in which the twenties, at least for a certain stretch, you know, you could see that America really did get uh, wealthier. Like their standard of living really did go up. Um, a lot. So, yeah. All right, Bob, thanks very much. I know we we're only supposed to go 45 minutes and I've, I've kept you way over that. So what are you working on right now? Why don't you tell, I know you got the podcast or you're working on anything cool that uh, you'd like to share with the audience. Uh, well, it's, I, I'm still sorry. Other I get than my raising your kids, your newborns. Yeah, right. Cause yeah, <laughs> I, I had a baby recently. My, my, well, my wife obviously had the baby um, and we're getting, we're, we're moving from Massachusetts to Florida. So I've been a bit busy with that, but yeah, just keeping up with the podcasts and, uh, and I am in all honesty, looking at this issue of the, the yield curve and trying to just work through the logistics of that. And even the stuff we were talking about, like I noticed, you know, as I'm sure, you know, maybe you've been talking about it. M2 is dropping yeah. recently. Yep, yep. And by the way, you know, some news outlets are saying for the first time on record it's like well no it, it fell in the early 30s like that's milton friedman's famous explanation for why the depression was so bad um and i'm just trying to see in the like the component it, it wasn't retail money market funds those are those are still up you know what i mean so it's mm-hmm. the m1 is down too so anyway i'm just trying to tease through and look at and you know what's funny figure things uh, Bob, out like is, that. I, is i actually i don't know if you have those you probably don't have those notes josh but josh and i went over that in a live stream we we're trying to think that through like last week or, or or the week prior, and I can't remember the inputs we were using, but we looked at bank credit, obviously, mm-hmm. and then we looked at uh, I, I think it was QT, and then we looked at reverse repo, and then we looked at a couple other components there, you know that that it, that that contributed. I tried to figure out because the de- I tried to look at the decline, and then try to look at kind of the usual suspects. And look at each one of those individually and see if that would add up or come close to the decline in M2. And there was still a gap there. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember what it was, Josh, maybe you remember, but I think there was still like a, like a two or $300 billion gap in, uh, in just me adding up what the, what the, the major contributors would usually be right. based on, on what we've seen. So, yeah. So when you come to those uh, conclusions and the results, are you going to share that on your podcast or where can people look for that? 
Yeah, at the very least, um, either that or I I do the podcast with Jeff Dyson. and so for um, the Mises. What's Institute, the name of that podcast? It's called the Human Action Podcast. Okay. okay. So if you know if it comes up, you know if we happen to be covering something that week that would be relevant, I might mention there. But but yeah, the Bob Murphy Show is my podcast, and certainly if I have something important that jumps out at me, that's where I would announce that. Awesome. Well, Bob, thanks again for your time. Good luck with the little ones, and good luck with the move, my friend. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, George.